So we are uh, continuing the Shalom Project here, and I'm going to try my best to get through uh, this morning in a, in a timely fashion and not keep you too long. But uh, uh, Shalom uh, is a Hebrew word, and we've talked about this word quite a bit, and it finds its way into our mission statement, which is Shalom Breakers Becoming Shalom Makers. And that word in the middle is super important. Uh, because God is inviting us to become a, a new kind of person. He created us to be a particular person. Uh, sin is really just basically shalom breaking, and shalom is defined as our relationship with uh, the, uh, God, with ourself, with others, and the world. Uh, and really the story of human history is how we as humans have broken shalom with God and, and the mess that's made of all four of those relationships. Uh, God had a plan, uh, his good news plan, the gospel plan, uh, to put everything back uh, to the way it was intended to be. Uh, and the, the key part of that plan uh, was the key part of where it went uh, astray in the very beginning when man broke relationship with God. And so the beginning point of him putting everything back to rights was uh, that same point of uh, God uh, reuniting uh, himself with humanity. And obviously he did that through the life and the death of Jesus. And so what, as we put our faith in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us, we, go, we move back into right relationship with God. Uh, and as we do that, we actually find our identity in who he truly uh, made us to be. Uh, and from that place, we can begin to live in right relationship uh, with others in our world as far as it depends on us. Uh, and so we talked about worshiping God, and we become like that which we worship, and God created us to worship him. Uh, and so as we give our lives to God, as we give lordship of our lives to him, uh, when we broke shalom, we said, I'm going to do things my own way. Uh, coming back in right relationship with God is actually submitting to his kingship, his lordship uh, in our lives. And so as we give him that space, as we worship him, we become like him. Uh, and as we become like him, that impacts who we are. Our identity is changed. Uh, we are sons and daughters of God, living in right relationship with God. Uh, and he made us to be in his image in the very beginning, which means to reflect his character, reflect who he is into the world. And so as we become like him, we begin to see people the way that he sees them and treat people the way he treats them. Uh, and so those two things are really important as we move into talking about shalom with others. Our world talks a lot about justice and being in right relationship with others, um, but it's void of an acknowledgement that something has gone astray in us with God. And if we don't fix that which was broken in the very beginning, it's hard to fix the symptoms uh, that came out of that. Uh, and so as we think about shalom with others, we need to recognize that God does not uh, separate shalom with God from shalom with others. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he didn't give one commandment, he gave two commandments. He said, the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so God said, you cannot separate these two. As we love God, it naturally begins to affect the way we love one another, the way we honor one another. And then on top of loving your neighbor, because people wanted to figure out who their neighbor was so they knew who to love and who they didn't have to love, who they could hate and who they could love, um, you know, Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus actually brings it to the place of recognizing that uh, our neighbor is everyone, that God calls us not just to love those that you like, uh, but to love even our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. And so the litmus test for our love for God is our love for our neighbor, and the litmus test for our love for our neighbor is our love for our enemy. Uh, and so uh, that led us to talk about forgiveness last week. And 
Uh, I know forgiveness, the topic of forgiveness is a heavy one for many of us who have been wronged, uh, some of us in very significant ways. And forgiving, as we said last week, is really giving away uh, what God has given us, or even more specifically, recognizing that God has given everyone forgiveness and he invites us to put our name on the gift with his, uh, that we could participate with him in forgiving other people. Uh, and I wanted to make a couple of clarifying statements around forgiveness because I had a, actually a number of follow-up questions, uh, conversations over the last couple of weeks uh, because sometimes people, as they wrestle with forgiveness, uh, recognize that things uh, aren't going to be back the way they were, that the reconciliation uh, isn't happening. And reconciliation and forgiveness are two very different things. Uh, you can forgive someone and that relationship can still be unreconciled. Uh, I mean, I experience this, this all the time. As a father with three boys, uh, I have wars going on in my household all the time. There's always a need to forgive somebody, uh, all the time. Uh, brothers forgiving brothers. And I'm, all, I'm always trying to coax them to forgive each other, right? Uh, and often they don't want to do that. And so sometimes you actually put consequence on them to encourage the forgiveness. And I remember we were having a big war between my oldest and my youngest. And uh, it, it had just been escalating. And, you know, you get to that point as a parent where you're just like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up here in a second. Uh, but then every once in a while as a parent, you have like one of those moments where you have this idea seems like a Holy Spirit idea that came into your brain about how to discipline them in like a very creative way. Uh, so I had one of these moments where the God was like, discipline them in this way. I'm like, this, this is a great idea. Um, anyways, maybe I don't want to attribute to God uh, my ideas. But I went to my oldest and my youngest, and I said, okay, that's enough. I've had it. You guys, uh, your consequence is going to be uh, you have to hug each other on the couch for the next two hours. Two hours of embrace until you can forgive one another and you can love one another and we can reconcile this relationship. And so, you know, they're just like, you know, I, I made sure it happened. I stood there and I, I, I oversaw the situation uh, to make sure they did what they were told. And over time, you know, you could see the change in, in one of their hearts. Um, and I remember thinking, i got to take a picture of this. And I did. And so, uh, there you go. You can see forgiveness. <laughs> One of them forgave, but the relationship was not yet reconciled. Because uh, it takes two. Uh, I'll let you guess which, who the one was that didn't want any part of it. Um, I think he was not excited that Dad was taking a picture and knew it was going to end up in a moment like this. So... Um, if you, could not, if you could not make a comment to him later, that'd be great. Uh, so, anyways, all that to say that forgiveness and reconciliation are two very different things. A reconciliation takes two people, uh, and, and there's often more even going on than just having two people to do it. Uh, there's often other factors of why reconciliation cannot happen. Uh, sometimes it is unsafe for that relationship to ever return to the way that it was because of maybe power dynamics, uh, maybe there's abuse, maybe there's... Uh, there's a, deeper levels of healing that is needed in an individual for that to become a safe environment again. And so there's all sorts of reasons why boundaries need to be put in place sometimes, why there's, uh, there's a way that things need to be set up that honor uh, the person that is forgiving to make sure that they're not perpetually made a victim or hurt again. Uh, and so there's all sorts of complexities around this. Uh, 
And I just wanted to acknowledge the complexity of that and say, you can forgive someone without things going back to the way it was. You can forgive someone without reconciliation happening. And because reconciliation hasn't happened, doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven them. Uh, And I think the greatest marker of someone that's forgiven another person is you actually wanting the best for them. Uh, When we start to see somebody the way that God sees them, when we start to actually long for them to do well, to be well, to succeed, to find healing, uh, when we start to see people the way God sees them, that's a sign that God's forgiveness has actually penetrated our hearts and now it's extending out of us. And that takes time. uh, And usually depending on the degree to which we've been hurt, uh, some of it takes significant time and significant work. Uh, But it is possible as we let God's Spirit do a healing work in our hearts. And so I just want to encourage you in the process of forgiveness and and acknowledge uh, that sometimes reconciliation doesn't work. uh, It can't work um, for a wide variety of reasons. So last week, we focused on the interpersonal aspect of forgiveness, and today I want to start working our way towards, uh, you know, going beyond that scope, going to a a wider level. Uh, And this is kind of a hinge week, as next week we're going to talk about shalom with the world. Uh, And we recognize that the world uh, really just becomes an extension of our shalom with others on more of a macro scale. Uh, Often pain is experienced from one demographic of people to another. It may be between two individuals sometimes, but even those two individuals uh, may be a a part of a larger dynamic of power. Uh, And so there's power things at play all the time in relationship. And it's important before we look at the world, uh, shalom with the world, which we'll dive into the next week, that will understand this power dynamic. Pain and hurt is often experienced with some sort of power dynamic, even in your most intimate relationships. And maybe particularly in your most intimate relationships, uh, the people that you are most intimately uh, in relationship with, uh, there is a power dynamic at play there because you... Because intimacy involves vulnerability, and you've become vulnerable with another person, which means now they have the potential to hurt you, which is why some people close themselves off from intimate relationships because they've been hurt in the past, because to give yourself to somebody in relationship is actually a vulnerable act. So every relationship has a power dynamic in it. Uh, Now, there's power dynamics that go beyond those interpersonal relationships into society uh, itself. So I want to talk about... How do we live as followers of Jesus when we're powerless? And then how do we live as followers of Jesus when we're powerful? Uh, Jesus could identify with those who felt powerless. He could identify with those that were abused. He could identify uh, to those who are in a situation that seems unfixable or unchangeable. Jesus was actually born into slavery. Now, you and I don't think about that very often uh, because we read our scriptures through the lens of uh, a middle, upper-class, Western worldview. And so we almost impose that onto the Bible when we read it, but, and we fail to recognize that Jesus was a Hebrew baby born into an oppressive sla- uh, system of slavery. Uh, and even our children's books and children's Bibles that maybe you read if you went to church when you were a kid, they don't help us any because Jesus is usually a white guy that looks like a model from GQ magazine. This is a picture that I... I found uh, just a, Jesus in a storybook. He looks like Fabio uh, with a sheep. Uh, you know, you could put Ryan Reynolds up next to him, and you're like, that's what Jesus looks like. You know, we, we don't do ourselves any favors. Uh, we have a hard time actually entering the world 
that Jesus was born into, which was one of powerlessness. He was a slave, and his people were slaves to the Roman Empire. They weren't free people. They were a nation bound by another power, oppressed by another power. Jesus grew up in oppression. The Bible is written uh, on the whole by a group of people that for the most part of its history were slaves. When you're reading the biblical account, you're reading a history account written by people in slavery. And so these were people who didn't have political freedom, but it was people of faith who found intrinsic freedom. Jesus is teaching people the way to find freedom no matter where you are in terms of the power dynamic. So we should be asking questions as we're reading the Scriptures. Can we be free without power? Is there a way to keep your power even when you've lost your freedom? And Jesus' answer is unequivocally yes. A hundred times yes. That freedom, you can be powerful and not have freedom. And you can be powerless and have freedom. Uh, And the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this world. And so Jesus did a bunch of teaching on the kingdom of God uh, and how do you live as a kingdom citizen uh, when all of these power and freedom dynamics are at play. So in in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving his uh, most famous sermon, probably the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he speaks to these dynamics a couple of times. So Matthew 5, verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And he goes on, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, Jesus reemphasizing this fact, if you're my followers, your job is actually to represent the heavenly Father. Represent Him in how you live. So in Matthew 5, Jesus, over and over again, beyond just the scope of these couple of paragraphs, uses this, this moniker. He says, you have heard it said... Blah, 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 blah. Uh, but I say to you. And he does that over and over again. So when he says, you have heard it said, where did they hear these things? What are they, what is Jesus referring to? Well, Jesus is referring to their Bibles, their scriptures. He's saying, you have read, yeah, you religious people know that it's been said. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is the example here. And, and so in the scriptures themselves, Jesus is saying, you've heard this say, said here, but I'm saying to you that there's a different way to live uh, beyond that which you thought you ought to live, the way you ought, thought you ought to live. Uh, and so here's what Jesus is referring to in Exodus 21. It says, but if there's serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. You kill my dog, I kill your dog. 
Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. Deuteronomy 19, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So Jesus is referring to the scriptures themselves and he's saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is saying to those who listen, people can follow the Bible, but they still may not follow me. You can follow the Bible and not follow Jesus. You can take a part of scripture and actually not follow Jesus. Jesus is challenging religious people who are justifying their actions by deferring to scriptures when Jesus is saying those scriptures are actually pointing to a greater reality. Uh, Those scriptures uh, are being fulfilled in me, in my life, in my teachings, and so listen to what I'm saying. You can find scriptures to justify your anger, your retaliation, but if you choose to follow Jesus, it's actually going to take you beyond just following the letter of the law. It's going to take you to a certain ethic of life, a certain way of doing life, a certain posture of doing life. So Jesus talking to religious people, church people, and saying, don't just defer to what the Bible says over here, but recognize where the Bible is leading and start living in the ethic of the kingdom of God. You have heard this, but I say this. Now, this doesn't just mean you go and pick and choose what you want to believe in the Bible. That's absolutely not. It's absolutely not what Jesus is doing. Uh, But he's saying, open your eyes. Do you have the eyes to see, the ears to hear what God and His Spirit are doing? And uh, William, William Webb, who's a theologian, who's a scholar, uh, he's written quite a bit on this, uh, but he, he does a good job. Uh, I'm going to nerd out for a second. Is that okay? Yes? Yes, I got more yeses than first service. There was no nerds in first service, I'll tell you that. Um, so glad to be with my people. No, uh, so, so William Webb, he, he, uh, he talks about this, this idea called the redemptive hermeneutic. Now, this looks really confusing. It's not as confusing as it looks. Uh, and let me just explain it. Uh, but he's saying, depending on where you are in the course of history will actually impact how you read the text. And so we just used an example of that uh, when we said we, don't have, we have a hard time identifying with Jesus' world because of where we're reading the Scriptures from, our standpoint in history, where we are in, uh, yeah, at this point in history. Uh, and so... Uh, what he's saying is that there's certain points where we read back to things the way they were, and it seems regressive. So you can look at the picture of the, the one guy there who's looking back from our standpoint and saying, that looks regressive. But if you actually read it in the context, in the, the historical, historical context in which it was written, it was actually redemptive. When you compare the movement of what's happening with what else was going on at that point in history, God is actually moving his people in a redemptive way. Uh, And so William Webb is basically saying, pay attention to the redemptive movements in Scripture where, where things are moving, where God is actually bringing about something greater than that, uh, than what is. Uh, And so there's certain things where we can see this, the idea of slavery. We can see that the Bible doesn't really talk against slavery, uh, but there's a redemptive movement away from slavery towards the liberation of all people throughout Scripture. We can see this with women, uh, that 
that there's restrictive texts, yes, about women in the, in, the, in the Scriptures. And we can look back from our standpoint in history and say, hey, that looks really regressive. But if you look at what God was doing at that point in history, he was doing something extremely redemptive. And then Jesus continues it. So William Webb is basically saying, pay attention to where the whole movement is going. And this isn't true for all things. And, that, and you also need to pay attention to that. There's some things that show no movement from the beginning to the end of Scripture. Right? So you can't just pick and choose and say, I'm going to live this way. There, there's some things that God has been completely the same on from the beginning of history to the end of history, and that's different. Uh, so a sexual ethics would be one example of this. In Matthew 5, G, uh, we see that sometimes Jesus uh, makes something more restrictive, not less restrictive. So yeah, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with, a, uh, with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. So he's taking something and actually making it, he's raising the bar on it. He does the same thing when it comes to murder and anger. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder or else you'll be subject to judgment. He says, but I say to you, uh, be careful when you're angry because even when you're angry, you're subject to judgment. And so he's taking something and making it even more restrictive. And so we see the kingdom of God is upping in one way or another uh, what it means to live as image bearers, to live as Christ followers. Uh, and so we need to pay attention uh, to what God is inviting us to and where the Holy Spirit is, is leading us. And so Jesus, when it comes to uh, enemies and violence, uh, we can see a redemptive movement from the very beginning to the end of Scripture. We can see points in Scripture where, where it talks about justices and injustices, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but we need to recognize it doesn't stay there. That God is continuing to move his people to a greater reality, to a greater way of relating to one another. And Jesus uh, articulates this uh, a number of times. And so let's look at the first one. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Uh, I was looking for my assistant, and he left. Uh, Isaiah, come here. Uh, so everybody give Isaiah my hand. He's, he's my assistant. Yeah, come on on stage. Um, so first one, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, I've been waiting for this moment actually for a long, a long time. Uh, you know, you're of that age group where you do like those slap battles with your friends, right? No, you, you haven't done that? Okay. You want to you do that? No, I don't want to do that with you. I would lose. Um, so uh, let me just show you an example of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, the assumption... Uh, at this time in history, everybody is right-handed. And so when Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So my assumption is that I'm slapping you uh, with my right hand on your right cheek. Which means what? Backhanded. Which means a backhanded hit. Uh, and this was a diminishing act. It's, it's an act that an authority would give to someone who is less than them. It's a way to dehumanize somebody. You're not even worth my time. So you would backhand them. And so Jesus is saying, if, if, if a Roman official comes and back, are you ready for it? No. <laughs> if, 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 sorry, not a Roman official. If anyone comes and slaps you and backhands you, they're trying to dehumanize you. And there's a way that you can fight this battle for your own dignity without actually resorting to eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You don't have to backhand them back. He said, instead, turn the other cheek. So which is kind of like a, 
you know, snobby kind of move, right? Uh, because what you're inviting me to do when you turn the other cheek is to hit you with my forehand, uh, which is a much more aggressive strike, uh, which, which when, when I, if I were to hit you with my forehand, that is actually treating you like an equal, not as somebody below me. So thank you, Isaiah. Give Isaiah a hand. Great job. He came away unscathed. And so Jesus is saying here, if someone slaps you on the right cheek uh, and you want to fight back, there's a way to fight back without dehumanizing yourself or the other person. You turn to them the other cheek. You, you actually demand they treat you as an equal. The soldier was not allowed to critically injure someone without being provoked. The only power he had was to diminish you till you felt less than. When you stand there with the other cheek and you turn to him the other cheek, you communicate that only one of us has been diminished and that one person is not me. You communicate that if you're going to continue in this way, it's actually going to look worse for you than it is for me. I will actually stand here and take your strikes and your blows and over time, you will be seen for what you are and I'll be seen for what I am. Now, to come to his level... You would fight eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus is saying if you do that, you are actually becoming less than human. You, you, are, you are not living in the kingdom ethic that I'm inviting you to live in. So there's a way to fight back, but it's going to be at a cost to yourself. But that's how you can actually live in freedom uh, even if you don't feel free. And then he goes on. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, we live in a culture of consumption. Enough is never enough. We always want just a little bit more than what we have. Uh, And last week, we talked about stealing and stealing uh, as something uh, that we do when we can't create, That, that, that God has actually called us not to steal from one another, not even to get rightfully from one another, but then move to a place of generosity, from taking to getting to giving. But the truth is that we live in a litigious culture, which is all about figuring out how we can take somebody else's money and how we can keep our money from being taken away. And we find ways of doing that even legally. And we can justify it because it's done legally. But we we need to recognize that greed breeds greed and corruption breeds corruption. And the Hebrew people at this time lived... Uh, without justice, and they had all sorts of ways of people that they tr- as, as a people that they tried to respond to this injustice. And some of them, understandably, thought that, you know, I could, if I just joined the other side, rightfully so. I mean, I've been beat up, uh, I've been looked down upon, I'm lesser than, I'm being stolen from, uh, I have a right to actually move on from this oppressive system uh, and if I could find a way to take from other people, I would be justified in doing it. I mean, it makes sense from a human perspective. Uh, and so some of the Hebrew people actually chose to join forces with the oppressors. And if you remember earlier when we read in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus spoke, uh, he used tax collectors as an example of like the enemy. Uh, and tax collectors were hated by Hebrews. Uh, do you know Why? It's because tax collectors were Hebrews that decided to join forces with the enemy, with the Romans. They had sold their soul to the enemy, so to speak. They were responsible for making sure 
that Rome got the taxes that they demanded from all of their subjects, but there was a great deal of leeway in the process. Uh, so after Rome got the taxes that they, uh, that they required from the individual, the tax collectors could tax them up to any point that they wanted to. And so there was lots of oppression happening, lots of uh, extra stealing and taking happening, uh, and the Hebrew people could not do anything about it. And the tax collector's income came on the backs of their own people. So you can imagine how hated and despised tax collectors was. You know, the people, your brothers and sisters that you were suffering under the system with, traded sides, went to the enemy side. You know, it would be like Johnny Goudreau going to play for the Oilers. Uh, no? Uh, so what would we do with that? You know, your, your teammates go to play for the other side, and now they're attacking you. Uh, this is the picture that... Uh, that that Jesus is bringing us to. As long as Caesar got what he demanded, the tax collectors were free to take what they wanted. They were institutional thieves that had the back, uh, that were backed up by the power of Rome. And so they were despised. Uh, but they could justify in their minds doing this because they had been on the bottom for so long. So if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. See, when you feel like what belongs to you has been taken from you, it can easily justify a belief that you might as well take whatever you can get wherever you can get it. When you've been on the bottom and people are um, leveraging that to their advantage, over time it can create a victim mentality or what I would refer to as a poverty mentality. Suing, which is the example that Jesus used here, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well, suing is often an incentive for being a victim. You can sue somebody legally, rightfully, when you've been wronged in some way. And I think this line is even more applicable today than maybe it was even in Jesus' time. We live in a world that has incentivized being a victim. The more you've been victimized in our world, the more you can take. The more you can demand, the more your voice has weight. We've created an entire practice and belief system that encourages people to stay in a perpetual state of victimization. Now, I don't say this in any way to minimize the way that people have been victimized. Uh, People have been hurt uh, in so many ways. Uh, And God draws near to those who are hurting. But the difference is that God never wants us to stay in a state of victimization. And in our world, we are actually incentivizing this perpetual state of being a victim or having a poverty mentality. Too often, helplessness creates a poverty of the soul. And when you lose faith that there's not enough to go around, you become become convinced that you have to get whatever you can get, however you can get it. For someone to succeed, someone else needs to fail. For someone to have, someone else needs to go without. And the more that you've been hurt, the more that we can justify that in our own eyes. And we can see how this victimization, this poverty mentality plays out because I think we could all think of people who are incredibly wealthy and powerful, but yet are also very, very greedy. I'm sure we can also think of people who um, don't have very much and have very little, but are very, very generous. You see, a poverty mentality is uh, is not dependent on our wealth or our place of power or our status. It's actually something going on in our souls. 
And so when Jesus invites us to live a different kind of life, a kingdom life, he's inviting us out of a victim mentality, out of a poverty mentality. Jesus is speaking to this dilemma. And so how do you wage war against greed? How do you wage war against this type of greed that we're talking about? Well, you wage war against greed with generosity. If someone tries to sue you and take your shirt, Jesus says, go the extra mile. Confuse them completely by giving them your coat as well. Don't fight over meaningless things. You know, someone sues you, then you sue someone else. You know, you're just going back to that eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Rise above them and respond to their greed with a generosity that will confuse them and it will challenge them. It's the same type of concept as the slapping from the backhand to the forehand. You actually respond in a radical way that exposes something in the other. But the truth is that you can only give a man your coat if you have an abundance mentality. If we're stuck in a poverty mentality or a victim mentality, it is hard to step into a generous, abundant mentality. And so we need to have an abundant mentality if we're going to live this radical generosity that Jesus is speaking about. If you're convinced that God is always more generous than you, it becomes easier and easier to be generous with others. If you're convinced that with God you don't ever have any lack, it actually frees you up to give sacrificially to others because you're not stuck in this posture of victimization or poverty. And then Jesus goes on, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And historically we find out that soldiers were permitted to get a Hebrew person to carry uh, the load that their horses were carrying. And these loads could be anywhere from 50 to 70 pounds. And so there's a Hebrew man, a Roman soldier, to give their horse a break, could say to that Hebrew man, here, carry my load. And they, they were permitted to make the Hebrew man carry it for up to one mile, but they couldn't carry it more than one mile. And so that gives you a little bit of an insight to how the Romans viewed the Hebrews. They viewed them on the level of animals. Uh, They gave their animals a break by putting the animal's weight onto the person, the Hebrew. And so the Roman soldier could force them to carry it one mile. And if you didn't carry it one mile, they could kill you. And so you could obviously super oppressive system and policy that was put in place. Uh, But Jesus said there's actually a way that you can be more powerful than your oppressor. You think that you're not free, but you are. There's a way that you can be more powerful than your oppressor. And the way that you do that is that when that mile is done, and when they say, you don't have to carry this anymore, you say, I want to carry it more. No, you don't have to. No, I want to. No, No, I want to. Let me carry it for you. Let me give your horse a break. Put it on my back. I can go one more. So Jesus is saying, the first mile you walk as a slave But the second mile, you walk as a free man. The first mile, you might feel powerless, but the second mile, you're powerful. That the kingdom of God actually becomes powerful in the face of oppression uh, because it meets that oppression with generosity, with self-sacrificial love, with what the, uh, the Greeks called agape Love. Jesus is showing those who feel like they've lost their freedom that true power and freedom can never be taken from you if you understand what true power and freedom actually look like. Jesus did not ask us to do anything that he didn't do. He was slapped. He was mocked. He turned the other cheek. He was whipped. His clothes were taken from him. He hung on a cross naked. He was forced to carry his own cross, and he blessed those who were hitting him. 
those who were crucifying him, those who were mocking him, and he prayed for their forgiveness. Jesus lived out exactly what he was teaching. And so as we watch the teachings of Jesus, we look at the life of Jesus, we should be uh, maybe asking the question, was Jesus actually powerless? Well, here's the thing. He looked powerless. He was born into a system of powerlessness, but he showed us what true power looked like. Uh, And the reality is that Jesus was all-powerful. He was God with flesh on. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But he allowed himself to be acted upon by others within the corrupt systems of this world. And this was the way that he began to transform the world. This is the way that the kingdom of God uh, could be visible. And so Jesus not only shows us what it looks like to live as a free person under power, but he shows us what it looks like to be a free person with power. So when we look at Jesus, we don't just see him as powerless, we see him as powerful. We actually see someone who is powerful and can live with power and freedom. Uh, There's an adage that is universally accepted, and it says that absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you know it. Uh, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, This is a well-known saying, and if you look at the course of human history, it's mostly proven to be true, uh, except for the fact that it's absolutely wrong. And we know this is true because God has absolute power and God is incorruptible. What absolute power does is far more telling. Absolute power doesn't corrupt absolutely, but absolute power reveals completely. Power gives freedom to what has been hidden within the human heart. Power tells the truth about who we are. Power sets free what has been imprisoned in us all along. And you don't have to look very far in our world right now to see that when you have broken people that have absolute power, how devastating it can be. But the problem isn't with power. The problem is with our hearts. Absolute power reveals completely. Jesus understood this. Jesus knew this. And if Jesus is absolutely powerful, then what did that power look like? Well, in John 13, it says the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. This is right before Jesus would go to the cross. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his what? Power. Let's try that one more time. Try that one more time. Jesus said, uh, or had knew that he put all things under his what? power, and that he, he had come from God and was returning to God. So, uh, so that word so is so important because it's linking the idea of power, absolute power, to the action that is about to follow. So Jesus knew that God had given him all power, so he told his disciples to serve him. Get down on your knees. I'm the king of kings. What happened after so? So, he knew Judas was going to betray him, so he took him back to the back room and gave him a backsided hand slap. Speared him. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal 
took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, Jesus didn't wipe his disciples' feet even though he had absolute power. He wiped his disciples' feet because he had absolute power. And he was free to live out who he was. This is a picture of absolute power in the kingdom of God. Jesus, we often talk about how Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, which is absolutely true. Absolutely. But sometimes when we say that, we, we kind of perpetuate this idea that Jesus died on the cross so that we don't have to. See, Jesus died on the cross not just to save us from our sins, but he died on the cross as an example of how we are to live. We don't follow Jesus to avoid the cross. Actually, following Jesus leads us to the cross. This is why not very many people were excited about following him. Uh, Jesus gave us an example of how we are to live. His life his teachings. Not just the things that he said, which we just read, but also the things that he did, the way that he allowed himself to be acted upon, the way that he suffered, the way that other people hurt him and how he responded to that hurt and that pain. He was not willing to perpetuate this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, violence. He actually lived out a different, deeper kingdom ethic. Jesus didn't go to the cross so you and I wouldn't have to. He went to the cross to show you and I how to live. Jesus went through the cross to show you and I what was on the other side. And what was on the other side was resurrection. He showed you and I that resurrection was on the other side so that you and I could have an abundance mentality and know that there's nothing in this world that can actually rob us from the resurrection and the truth and the love of God. And that we can know that with determination and live with a courage uh, so that we can actually respond to pain to hurt, to violence in a self-sacrificial, agape love kind of way. So that you and I can live generously and self-sacrificially knowing that in the kingdom of God there is never a lack for those who follow the way of Jesus and that resurrection is always the promise for you and I. And that should free us up to living a radical response, response of lifestyle to the forces that we come up against in our world. We all have some sort of powerlessness and power in our lives. We have ways that we influence and ways that we've been influenced by others. But the way of Christ can be practiced both if you're in power or if you're under power, both if you're a king or if you're a slave. Jesus showed us how to do both, and they both ironically look the exact same. Whether you feel oppressed or whether you are someone that has influence and power, the way of Jesus looks like generosity, self-sacrifice, and service. That's why in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, you hear, you, hear, you hear a whole bunch of people talking religious talk and quoting the Bible, but they aren't living the way of Jesus. I think the world needs people that live the way of Jesus, that are willing to suffer for the sake of the other. Now, in the very beginning of church history, the church didn't have many rights and freedoms. Like I said, the church was actually born out of 
a place of oppression and slavery under the oppression of Rome. And for the first few hundred years, the church grew exponentially, rapidly. It was taking over culture. It was taking over nations. Why? Because the early followers of Jesus lived in such a radical, countercultural, self-sacrificial way, it changed the very culture they were a part of because they were giving up their very lives for the sake of their enemies. They had a potency to their Christian witness, to their followership. But that potency would eventually be watered down. It would eventually lose its influence. And if you look at what happened, well, what happened was when the state gave the church rights and freedoms, the church traded their mission for comfort and power. Now, obviously, I'm poking at something right now. Um, And I don't care much about your position on any number of things going on in our world, but I do care about your posture. As followers of Jesus, our position is found in our posture. As followers of Jesus, we follow him when we turn the other cheek. We follow him when somebody takes our shirt, we also give them our jacket. We follow him when someone makes us carry something one mile, we volunteer to take it two miles. Why? Because we see them the way God sees them. We love them the way God loves them. Even if they're our enemies, we love them. We pray for them. And I have a hunch that in our time, the way of Jesus is going to be more, uh, more important uh, at this point in my lifetime than it's been up until this point in my lifetime. That the world is desperate and hungry to see people actually live out the way of Jesus. Not just talk about it, but live it out in a self-sacrificial, generous kind of way. I'm going to invite you to stand with me uh, as we close in a final song. And when Drew's done, I'll just, I'll just invite you now at the end of service. Uh, there'll be prayer teams at the front. We would love to pray for you. Uh, there's prayer teams available during the week. You can just uh, message prayer at sunwestchurch.com. Uh, and it takes a community to live in a countercultural, radical kind of way. And so I would encourage you to be courageous. Uh, and I don't know where you would struggle to live out the kingdom ethic of Jesus in your life right now. Um, But I know that part of the answer is us cheerleading one another on. Uh, Part of the way we do that is in small groups and community. Part of the way we do that is through praying for one another, lifting our burdens up to God with each other. Uh, And then when we know that God is actually carrying us, it gives us courage to live how we ought to live. Uh, So I'd encourage you to come forward, take the opportunity to be prayed with at the end of service. Uh, And I'm going to pray for you now. And maybe Drew, after the final song, you can just dismiss dismiss us. So, uh, Lord, thank you. Uh, that you didn't just tell us how to live, you showed us how to live. Lord, we thank you that in your kingdom there is an abundance, that we have more than we need, that we lack nothing. Lord, we thank you that even if people take our very lives, that uh, you have shown us that you have resurrection life for us. Uh, And so, God, I pray for each individual here that we would live in such a courageous way. Lord, so courageous, so full of your forgiveness and love, first of all, because we've received it ourselves. Uh, But then second of all, that we would even allow ourselves to suffer 
to be hurt, to experience pain from others, uh, but then use those opportunities to demonstrate what grace, what forgiveness, what love, what mercy, what self-sacrificial love looks like. Lord, we probably all have spaces in our lives right now where we can live out this posture. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to that, you would open our ears to that, and that you would give us the courage uh, to live like Jesus in our day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.